it's been um, said time and time before, you know, Christians are curious people. Kind of weird. That if you want to build a crowd, you have a prophecy conference and everybody and their grandma is going to show up, you know. If we had a sermon series on 18 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 2018, well, everybody, every, every sucker born every minute would show up for it. And the truth is, when we talk about prophecy, especially from an Old Testament perspective, particularly at the holiday season, there is a lot of prophecy that is forthtelling, telling what will happen in the future. But the vast majority, the vast majority of Old Testament prophecy has more to do with ethical warning than it does with future telling. Thus saith the Lord. Here's his covenant. Here are the obligations. You didn't meet them. Now repent or you will bear the cursings, not the the blessings. Most prophecy has to do more with ethical warning than future telling. By that measure, today's message is relatively prophetic. Calling out something that, that I see and I hope that you see both in our church and in our culture, that is a problem. And the warning is this, in case you don't know it, today's December 17th, 2017, Christmas is about to attack. I say that tongue-in-cheek, Christmas is about to attack. And the attack that Christmas brings is not launched by godless atheists, or by the gay agenda, or by the glitz and glam of Hollywood. Instead, the insidious and friendly attack that Christmas launches is an attack of pride. Because you will be tempted, just like your kids or your grandkids will be tempted, to actually think when they sit down with the Sears Roebuck catalog and circle all the stuff that they want, that this holiday is about them. You see, in a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Christmas used to be about the Savior. And in our push to enjoy all of the many things that God has blessed us with, we have made it about self. And the stuff that self wants. And the truth is, it's not just at Christmas that we see this kind of boastful pride of life. Pride is everywhere. Do you know that? I mean, it's, it is everywhere. Uh, the, you know, you see, the, you see the commercials. This has not ever happened to anyone that I have ever known. But the guy who wakes up on Christmas morning and goes out to a lightly snow-covered driveway and his wife has wrapped up a Lexus with a great big bow. I have been hinting at Marcy, you know, for a long time. That'd be a great Christmas present. And all the other guys in the room said, amen. But we, we get that present and what do we do? We stick it on social media because we're proud of our possessions. Proud of my new boat, proud of my new iPad, proud of whatever. Uh, we're pr- proud of our possessions. Do we have any, um, are there any Clemson Tigers here this morning? Yeah? A few of you? Yeah? We're proud of our sports teams. And I, I, even when we don't have a lot to be proud of, um, present company speaking, um, we are proud of our sports teams. We're proud of all kinds of stuff. We're proud of our honor students even if they're not on the A honor roll, if they're on the B honor roll now, you've got bumper stickers to prove it. We're proud of our B honor roll student. As a matter of fact, the homosexual agenda has made pride a plank that they build their identity on. 
If you're from an ethnic group, there's ethnic pride. Pride is everywhere, and it seems like the only sin today is to not have some or to do something to squash someone else's. C.S. Lewis said in a much more um, memorable way than I will that as long as you breathe, you have trouble with pride. And if that statement offends you, congratulations, you just proved the point. You will struggle with pride all the time. And so we look at what we sing and what we preach about, about the Christmas holiday being such a blessed time of grace and peace. And I watch the lives that are hectic and hurried that we live, and I go, I don't see any peace. I see people freaking out whether Amazon's going to have Christmas (laughs) presents delivered by the 24th. Or... Those relatives that you don't really like, how long are they going to stay? And when does the next group come in? Not a lot of peace, not a lot of grace. And so we have made this exchange where we have taken Christmas in our pride and said, no, it's not about Jesus. It's about me and it's about what I want. And we actually train our kids very implicitly to think that the holiday revolves around them. Isn't that a tragedy? And it's not just little kids that think that. It's big kids too. There are other turns that we have made from the Savior to self, and they all kind of revolve around the same thing. A couple questions. Does our deepest satisfaction come from the creation, or does it come from the creator? How much stuff do you need to buy to be satisfied? Do you find your satisfaction in the creation or in God, the creator himself? Can stuff sustain us? Or have you trained yourself to rely on what only God can give? If there's nothing under your Christmas tree on December 25th, is it still well with your soul? There'd be a lot of people that it wouldn't be. Are you, in your holiday preparations, living for today, or are you living in light of eternity? These are important questions. Are we and are once at the center of this celebration or is it Jesus? You see, there are two tales that are told at Christmas time. One is all about us. It is seductive. It is attractive. But it is ultimately not good for us, like eating candy for breakfast. Not good. Wouldn't recommend that you do that. And the other story is all about him. And here's the challenge. You go, oh, I, I like the story that's all about him. But it's humbling and it's unattractive. And it has to tell you a lot of bad news. You're not nearly as good as your grandma thinks you are. As a matter of fact, you need Jesus. One lies to you about who you are and what you really need. And one has the bravado to confront your pride and tell you who your creator says who you really are and what you most ultimately need. Which which tale do you tell? If you're like most Christians... It's kind of a mix of both. It's not really the story all about him. It's the story about him mixed in with some stuff about us. It's a problem. George Barna, who uh, researches and surveys uh, Christian living, says that most people that go to church don't actually believe Christian beliefs. They've been so infiltrated by worldly ways of thinking that if we pass even just a basic theology test around this morning that most people would check mark the things that most Americans, not most Christians, is what they truly believe. Pride is a really hard thing to kill, too. You ever tried it? You know, you got your, 
your precious little three-step plan for killing pride. And then like, you know, there's pride laying on the ground. And you're like, dang, look at me. I killed pride. And the minute you say it, he cocks his head up at you and he smiles and he goes, I'm not dead yet. Even in your apparent victory over pride, pride still wins. It's hard to kill. As a matter of fact, the reason he smiles is he knows how weak your efforts are. You're not going to root it out completely. And the only way for us to do that, the only way for us to deal with our pride fully and effectually is to understand the Christmas message. That God sent his son to be incarnated for the entire purpose of living a sinless life, that he could be the atoning sacrifice for your and my sins, that by repentance and faith in him, we might be forgiven our sins and granted the blessings of eternal life with him. Today, we're going to look at the Christmas story really from a different perspective. We're going to look at the character of Joseph. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about Joseph, Joseph never speaks one word in the entire New Testament. Yet he preaches one of the most elegant sermons by his obedience. We'll start in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. And I want you to hear this. It's, it's the nativity story. You've heard this before. Beginning in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged, or uh, the better word is betrothed to Joseph. And let me pause there for a second. Um, we have engagement and marriage uh, in the uh, Jewish culture, you had engagement, betrothal, and then marriage. So betrothal is more serious than engagement, but it's not the full consummated husband-wife relationship of marriage. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She had a baby mom. She's not supposed to. So... Put a little dot, dot, dot there. So, her husband, her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had made up his mind about these things, after he'd considered them, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you, you're to name him Jesus, because he will, he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him, and he married her. What a phenomenal story. This could be on daytime television programming. Young lovers uh, with a a, a purity and a passion for each other that is commendable. And as they they continue their journey towards that, that day of festivity and celebration, their wedding day. There's a plot twist. Joseph kind of sees a side profile of his girlfriend in the distance. And her figure looks a little bit different. Oh, can you imagine the awkward conversation that takes place 
right after that. You see, Joseph knows he is not that baby daddy. (laughs) Who is? And men, let me just ask the question baldly. Would you not be offended? Would this not crush your dignity? Yet through it all, one of the things that is amazing about Joseph's character, Matthew takes the strongest line on the sanctity of the marriage relationship. Yet, Joseph is accorded as a righteous man, even though, and this is not divorce like we would think of divorce because they're, they're not married, they're betrothed. But Joseph's desire to end the relationship and not do it publicly is held up in Matthew as a respectable and honorable and holy thing. He still loves her. He doesn't want her to become a public spectacle. He doesn't want harm to befall her. She has had some kind of illicit relationship. Um, She has been promiscuous. And yet, he's told by the angel of the Lord, perhaps a, I don't know how you have a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ when he's in the womb. The angel of the Lord appears to him and describes to him, this incredible thing that we call the, the, the virginal conception. I mean, it is a virgin birth because it's a virgin conception. Virgin conception leads to virgin birth. And he's told of this amazing thing that has been done by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, he says by, not with. Because if you have with, it changes the whole nature of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Mary. Now it becomes something pagan. God's consorting with females. The Holy Spirit did it. It's done by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one-sided. Mary didn't say, I, I'm available. It just said, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit did it. And he's told very specifically, he's instructed to take her as his wife. And it's in these details that we begin to see an incredible humility. And your first point is this, humble people. Humble people follow God carefully, even through difficult circumstances. I think I'm with Joseph on this one. I think if I had been in his situation... What's the quietest, rightest thing for me to do to get out of this situation? And yet, we're, uh, we are recorded in Scripture that he follow, followed God carefully. What did he do? It says he had the dream, he got up, he took Mary as his wife, and he did something else. What was the second thing he did? He named the child to be born Jesus. Why did he do that? Because the angel told him to. Down to the minutest letter of the law, Joseph obeyed. And do you think it was a difficult circumstance? Oh, okay. Now I know why they're having that wedding so soon. It's because they can't wait nine months. They're do- Grandma's doing the math, you know, trying to figure out, you know. Oh, okay. So they are on every prayer list of every Baptist church in Nazareth at this point. Bless their heart, you know, because that's the way we gossip is we do it. And so here's what I find interesting. The Bible says he had already made up his mind. It says that the angel appeared to him after he had considered these things about putting her away and divorcing her. If I was God, I'd have the angel show up before he'd done a whole lot of thinking. Because he's already got his course of action planned, and you know as well as I do, it's a lot easier to stop a boulder before it stops rolling, before it has momentum. So he's already figured out what he's going to do. This is the most righteous course of action. God appears and says, no, it's not. Take her as your wife, name him Jesus. You, you have a special role to play. And you know what he does, ladies? 
if, this, if, it, if I'm lying, I'm dying. The man changed his mind. You ever tried to tell a proud person that they're wrong? Good luck. You know what? Just go home. You are absolutely wasting your breath to convince a proud person of anything. Oh, look, the sky is green. No, it's not. It's blue. Baloney, it's green. There are just some people in life that whatever it is that they believe is the right thing, and the sooner you bow to their sovereignty and just agree with them on everything, your life will be a whole lot easier. You oppose a proud person, it's going to be hard. And yet Joseph had considered the right thing to do, and he allowed God to change his mind. There are some men and some women, pride is not a unigender disease, there are some men and women that I know that except for God, no one's ever going to be able to change their mind. And yet, Joseph displays this incredible humility. He had to have questions. God, do you know what people are going to say about me? There might be people that actually want to stone Mary, so I'm supposed to insert myself into this situation. He doesn't try to negotiate anything, and while he is silent, he speaks volumes through his actions of obedience. He married the woman that God said he needed to marry. He named his adopted son Jesus, and it was hard. Sometimes, some of, you don't, some of you won't get this. Sometimes, for you to follow God will require people to speak ill of you. Sometimes, following God will require you to have a sore and twisted reputation. Sometimes following God will cause you to be an object of scorn. It was hard. But you know what Joseph got to do? He got given the very unique opportunity of being the earthly steward and protector of God's own son because he was willing to be humble. Now, I know for me, when I was younger, and I'm, I'm still recovering from the disease of pride, I haven't licked it yet. I think I'll be fighting it for a long time. But I know in days gone past, there are opportunities for serving God that I missed out on because I was not humble enough. And I would imagine in a room this size, there have been opportunities that you have missed out on because you have not been humble enough to follow God, but you are boisterous and proud enough to follow your own plans. What would Joseph have missed out on if he was missing that Virtue of humility in his life. That's not the only example of humility in Joseph's life. Repeatedly throughout the nativity story, we're given pictures of Joseph's obedience. And we see, secondly, this sounds similar, but it's different, trust me, that humble people listen and obey immediately when God speaks no matter the cost. This sounds like what we just said in point number one, that they're going to obey Uh, under uh, the most difficult of circumstances. They're going to follow through with details. This is obeying immediately when God speaks, no matter the cost. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we're told the story that when Quirinius was the governor, that Caesar Augustus decreed that there was a census to be given and that everyone was to travel to their ancestral hometown to be numbered for the emperor. And you know that from God's perspective, as he is sovereign over time, God used Caesar's decree to move Mary and Joseph 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem where Jesus was prophesied to be born. Yet when, when Joseph hears the decree, what's he do? Saddles up his donkey, puts Mary on it, they go. He demonstrates humility towards the powers that are over him. And this is a key thing. I think sometimes when we talk about humility, people think that they can be humble towards God and not be humble towards each other. Humility, by, by necessary virtue, has to travel in two directions. If you say you're humble, in your, that you are bowing underneath the sovereignty of God, then you will be gracious in your relationships with other people. So if, if you want someone to provide some kind of objective measure of your humility, they can, your best friend, your spouse, your, your co-worker, can look at your relationships and have a pretty dead ringer assessment of where you're at in your relationship with God. You cannot be humble to God in proud with people. Because God already says, you're made in my image, but you're a sinner. The image is distorted, you're broken, and so is everybody else. The ground is level for all of us. And so humility always travels in two directions. And Joseph has already demonstrated humility towards God. He demonstrates humility over the political powers that exist. And he travels at their bidding. But then Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, shows that Joseph is willing not to just travel at the emperor's bidding, but he's willing to obey immediately when God tells him to travel at, at, at God's, God's bidding. Listen to what the scriptures say. After they were gone. Who's they? If you were here last week, you'll realize that we ended in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. The wise men. After the wise men left. You, you think your holidays are hectic? The wise men have just saddled up their whatever they rode on and they're leaving. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream. You know what's interesting? Joseph's best work is done while he's sleeping. Amen. Anybody need a nap? That's good. While he was sleeping, it appeared to him in a dream saying, get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Here's the deal. We talked about this last week. It is a six-mile walk from, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. He had commissioned the wise men to go find the child and report back to him. They had been warned not to go back to Herod, so they leave. They're probably only there for maybe two or three days. So when it says, after they left, suddenly get up and go... Herod would have expected the wise men to report back in a timely fashion. And when, the, when Herod figured out he was duped, what did he do? He said, we're going to kill all the kids, all the male children in Bethlehem under two years old. One big brushstroke to get it. And so there is some urgency to this. Get up, go. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I have called my son. God, again, doesn't give him a lot of warning. Doesn't try to pencil himself into Joseph's schedule. He wakes him up in the middle of the night. He says, go. And what does Joseph do? You get the idea that he wakes up and starts packing his bag. How do you think that conversation with Mary would have gone? Hey, wake up. We're leaving. 
Like, guys, I, I highly recommend this holiday season, don't tell your wife what your travel plans are. Wake her up at two in the morning, pack your bags, and leave within half an hour. Just see, see how that goes for you, you know? He wakes her up. He says, we got to go. Where are we going? Um, Egypt. Is there any particular place in Egypt? Uh, we'll figure that out when we get there. How long are we staying? I don't know. God has told me to do this. I have the sense that if God told you something at three o'clock in the morning last night, you probably weren't going to do anything until you had, a, had breakfast and the sunlight was up. And the challenge is, parents in the room, is delayed obedience, obedience? Clean up your room. A week later, they're like, well, you didn't tell me when, so I was planning on doing it this Saturday. It's not obedience. He got up. Well, it was still night, and he goes. And here's the thing that is so ironic in this story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. We just read it. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And now Joseph has to save the Savior. The mystery of the incarnation. He is a child. He's a newborn, probably four or five months old. And Joseph has this incredible opportunity to be the protector, the guardian of this one who has to live a sinless life, who has to teach the Sermon on the Mount. His whole future is in front of him. And that future concludes with an inglorious death as a common criminal on a cross. As if the incarnation was not humbling enough. When it says they had to flee to Egypt, uh, the verb there is fuego in Greek, which means uh, is the same root from which we get the word fugitive. He hasn't broken the law, but Jesus is on the run. He's a fugitive. And as a matter of fact, he crosses an international border, so he's not just a fugitive, he's also a refugee, from which the same word is derived, from that fuego word. How in the world could a humble carpenter afford an emergency international trip. Now, it's not a super long uh, travel. It's probably 100 miles to the border. And then they probably traveled another 50 or 60 miles inland to get out of the delta area of the Nile to get to some place where they could eke out an existence. You know, what's funny is they didn't have to flee before the wise men. They fled after the wise men who just brought gold and frankincense and myrrh and God in his sovereignty had already provided the emergency funds needed for the sudden relocation. You ever experienced that God shows up at just the right time with exactly what you need for a thing that you don't even know that you need it for? That's an incredible thing. That's an incredible thing. Joseph could have argued, well, you know, I know a great little place up in the hill country. No, 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 no. Um, Egypt's where I want you to go. Again, arguing with a proud man or making a comment about a proud person's parenting isn't going to win you friends and influence people. Oh, what, you don't think I'm doing a, a good job protecting this kid? Well, you can do it yourself. How dare you tell me how to raise my kid? Isn't it easy to pick, pick holes in other people's plans, timetables, and strategies? <laughs> I don't like it. Proud people tend to be really good at winning arguments and losing friends. Unfortunately, Joseph didn't do that. He listened. Pride has to be right. Humility doesn't. 
Pride has to be on its own terms. Humble people can drop it and go because God has said that that's what they're supposed to do. One last picture, Matthew 2, 19 through 23. And uh, we'll see here that humble people can obey without complaint. We talk about this in our family a lot when we talk about what obedience looks like. Obedience is always made up of three components. You obey all the way, like clean up your room, not just like, don't just make a pathway to get to your bed, clean up the entire room, not just a pathway to navigate, all the way, right away, with a happy heart. You'll be disciplined for any of those things because you're not obeying if those three things aren't present. If you obey complainingly, that is not obeying. If you obey delayedly, that's not obeying. If you don't do it, do it completely, that's, that's not obeying. And yet we see Joseph does all these things. He o- obeys immediately. He obeys uh, following the details to what he named the child. Like, maybe he wanted to name Jesus after him. I have like a Joseph Jr. Out. He didn't get the right to do that. God's already named him. And yet here we see that after they have settled in Egypt, and Joseph has established a reputation for being a great carpenter. And now people are coming to him and they're starting to see some vitality. After a year or so, God shows up again and tells him to move. Listen to what it says. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, get up, down deja vu. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who sought the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother and he entered the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, the scriptures get kind of confusing there. The idea is that because Bethlehem was in his ancestral home that he went to for the census, he had family there that he probably never had met before. When they went there for the birth of Christ to, to be numbered, he probably had some association with family members, extended family, and found that it was good for business. So when the Lord said, go back to Israel, his natural assumption was, Bethlehem's a lot closer than Nazareth. Let's go to Bethlehem. And he gets there and he finds out Herod's wicked son is still uh, uh, over that territory. So when he got there, he goes, I can't stay there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. I think after being woken up three times... I would probably accuse God of jerking my chain a little bit. Like, is there a time difference between us in heaven that you cannot do this like during normally scheduled business hours? Is there a reason that you have to tag me in the middle of the night? And you know, the truth is your defenses are down in the middle of the night. Maybe Joseph would not have replied so humbly if he had his full faculties and a cup of coffee to him. Maybe there's a reason that it had to happen in the middle of the night, but there's no complaint. There is simply obedience. Not a lot of detail. Get up, go. He gets up, and he goes. And he goes to the best place that he thinks to go, the place that they'd most recently come from, and he doesn't feel good about it. And God has not specified where he's supposed to be. So what what happens? God shows up again and says, yeah, you're right. Don't be here go somewhere else. This shows where they actually settle shows a great deal of humility too. Nazareth was known as a place that was very crude and rude and violent and rough. And so he makes, Joseph makes the home 
for his wife and for his adopted son in a place that is a backwater place that's not the place that you expect the king to come from. That's why Nathaniel, when he is called as a disciple, says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's a bunch of drunk rednecks up there. You know, I'm not thinking some religious teacher is going to come out of there. They don't, e- they don't, they don't even have a... They, they, they don't even have teeth brushes up there. They just need toothbrushes. And um, it's bad stuff. It, it's, it's messed up. He obeys without complaint. He didn't say, why me? Why here? Why now? He doesn't protest that he's doing a good job as a father. He just goes. And what's amazing about this whole kind of recitation of the Christmas story is that it seems to us, at least from this perspective, that this whole story is about Joseph, the man who never says anything in the Gospels, who preaches a sermon by his actions, not by his words. And yet, if we thought that this entire message was about Joseph, we would get it completely and totally wrong. Joseph is only significant in this story because he has been given this guardianship over Christ. And if you have been impressed with the humility that Joseph has demonstrated in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, wait till you see what his adopted son will do. Philippians 2 says, he regarded equality, not something to be striven for. He didn't, he didn't have to prove himself. He didn't say, oh, you're going to mock me as the king of the Jews? Well, let me show you my glory. No, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient, taking the form of a slave. And he became obedient even to the point of death and not from a ripe old age, death on a cross. That's what he did. And how sweet of God in his sovereign providence to provide the boy, Jesus, with a fallible human example of a man who could be humble. Moms and dads, always be conscientious of the shadow that you cast for your kids. You make that rut that they may be stuck in. Use your influence well. His death on a cross for humble people who are willing to raise their hand and say, I'm a miserable sinner. And apart from the grace of God, I deserve hell. Because the Bible says that whoever turns from their sin and places their faith in Christ, his life is death and his glorious resurrection will have life eternal. And that the only way for us to have that, there's only one door. It's not multiple choice, it's through Jesus. So as Jesus' people, if he was humble, if Joseph was humble as an example to us, we should be humble as well. So how do you develop humility in the midst of a holiday that teaches you to think about yourself? Five simple suggestions. Number one, tell the true story. Tell the true story. There are two tales to tell, one about you, one about him. Tell the story about him. Parents, don't wait till Christmas Eve. You should tell the story every week. You should remind people that their default situation is to switch over to the fake story, which is point number two. You have to fight the fake news. No one instructs their kid to be a a pompous and prideful individual. Their own heart 
has enough of a factory inside it to produce all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of ways to worship self. And the fake news wants to deny that the bad news is out there. But the true story requires you to tell the bad news so that you can receive the good news and find Christ. Tell the true story. Fight the fake news. Jesus Christ came to save people from their sins. And if you don't come face to face with that, you will never have a savior. Number three, teach that Jesus is the greatest present of all. What, what underneath your tree on Christmas Day will make your life one whit better than what Jesus has already made it if he has redeemed you? Is there anything that money can buy that will truly provide soul satisfaction? There's not. And yet we prostitute ourselves at Santa's feet, waiting for the good gifts that he gives, when the best gift of all has been wrapped up in the flesh of a baby who offers himself as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Number four, if there's anything that you learn from Joseph's story, if you want to uh, develop humility, be prepared for hardship. Be prepared for hardship. Be prepared to get woke up in the middle of the night and told to do something that you had no plans to do. God will use difficult experiences. You will be criticized. You will be misunderstood. You will be misrepresented. God will even use your own sin to grow you in a good way if you learn from the mistakes that you make. He will use your inadequacies to humble you, but yet through all these things, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, your own inadequacies and sin, you overwhelmingly conquer in all these things through Christ who loved us. Number five, seek out godly friendships. Seek out godly friendships. One of the things that is most insidious about our our pride is that we all think we're humble. At least we're more humble than the person sitting next to us. And it don't work that way. If you want to find out if you're making progress in humility, ask a coworker who who knows you well. Ask your spouse. Ask your best friend who can provide some kind of objective measure because the Bible says your heart is deceptively wicked. Don't listen to it. It'll tell you you're doing far better than you really are and you need some kind of objective help, you'll learn far more from your associates than you will learn from yourself. And the Bible says, uh, in an abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. So put people around you, they're going to speak the truth to you related to pride and humility. Friends, again, the challenge for us this morning is there are two tales to tell about Christmas. One speaks of uh, pleasure and... Um, uh, desires fulfilled and stuff aplenty. And one talks about the stuff that we don't ever want to talk about in public, sin and unworthiness. But it speaks about those things to lead us to an all-glorious Savior who stands ready to receive those who will place their faith in Him and repent of their sins and trust in Him. Which tale will you tell? Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for this example that we have in the life of Joseph. Father, we know he's a sinner just like us. There's nothing uh, special about Joseph's nature. He was quiet in his obedience. And Father, there's a lesson in that. He allowed himself to be inconvenienced in multitudes of ways. And yet, without complaining, obeyed you immediately. And obeyed you down to the very last detail 
putting, putting his own desires, uh, having them bow before you and saying, God, you call the shots. I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll marry the girl. I'll name him whatever you want me to name him. I'll leave in the middle of the night. I'll move back. I'll let you rearrange my schedule. And Father, sometimes we pretend that we have sovereignty over all these things. It's my life. It's my priorities. It's my schedule. It's my, 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 my. And Father, perhaps the hardest thing for us to lay at your feet is our, all of our mys. Help us to just say, it's not mine. It's yours. Help us to develop a humility, not just that's outward for the praise of men, but a humility that comes from the very deepest parts of our heart and soul. And we pray that as we um, exhibit this humility, that as you say in your word, that, that, that other men will see our good works and they'll praise not us, but our Father who is in heaven. It's in your name that we pray.